0: Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Genesis begins with life and ends with death. It begins with creation and it ends with a corpse. The last chapter speaks about the death of Joseph. And so the book tells us how and why this massive change happened. It happened because of our disobedience. And we learn as we go through this book that disobedience brings destruction. We see it played out in our family history that the wages of sin is death. That's what God told Adam and Eve. That's what happened. But we also see something else as we go through our family history in the books of Genesis, in the chapters of Genesis. We see this this conflict, this antithesis between two ways of living. There's living with God, there's living against God. And we we see that there's no third way. There are two ways to live. And so after the fall, the default is that people live against God. And so when we turn against God, we, that leads to, to, to being driven from the God. We're driven from the presence of God. We suffer the broken relationships with God, with each other, with the creation. There is murder, there is immorality, and there is generation after generation of dying and returning to the dust. And that's what happens in the first chapters of Genesis until finally we get to the cataclysm. You remember what that means, children. Cataclysm, the washing down. And God scrubs the earth and brings it back almost to the beginning of creation to scrub it from the pollution of sin. It's a lot of unpleasant stuff that's recorded here in these chapters, but also, through it all, there's this thread of hope. And that thread is is that God, in his sovereign grace, is working to redeem sinners and bring them back into communion with himself. He is, in all of the ups and downs, he is keeping his promises. He's preserving a holy seed. you remember Genesis 3.15? I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And eventually from the holy seed, the seed of the woman, will be born one descendant who will crush the head of the serpent. That's, that's a promise. And anchored in that promise is this thread which goes throughout all the Scripture until it comes to the birth of Jesus, until it comes to the cross, and that thread pulls right through to the new heavens and the new earth. And so that thread runs through this chapter as well, which is our text for this morning. Well, look at how it starts. It starts off a little bit positive, doesn't it? These are the generations. This is the history of Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Well, that's a good start, isn't it? There's life. There's, there's new life. That's what we're here for. Be fruitful, Be mul- uh, multiply, fill the earth. This is a good sign. This is a good start. You remember How after the flood, what God told Adam and Eve three times, he he told Noah and his sons seven times. So God was making a point. I want the earth filled with men, women, and children that live to my glory, that delight in my love. He says in another scripture somewhere in the Old Testament that he did not create the earth to be empty, to be a wasteland. That's really important. I just want to stop here. That's really important for those of us who read a lot in in the science and and, and who maybe go to university and and we're told by more and more people that human beings are the problem and that human beings are like a plague or a cancer on the earth. And, And if only we could get rid of the people, then the earth would be just so wonderful. That's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. We are image bearers of God. The more people the more praise, the more glory to God. That's the way things have been made. That's why we love children as believers. We love family. We rejoice in the baptism of our little sister, Aubrey. So it's a good start here. Sons were born to them. They're starting to multiply and be be fruitful. Now these sons here... You notice verse two, the sons of Japheth. and it's verse six, the sons of Ham. Verse twenty-one, Shem, and his descendants. They're not mentioned in order of birth. The way that the that, that Moses structured this chapter is that he first talks about uh, Japheth because the descendants of Japheth are the people that moved furthest away from Israel. So. It's actually in order of distance. Japheth is further away. The sons of Ham are a little closer. They were all around the people of Israel. And then, of course, the sons of Shem, uh, amongst them, were God's people. So Japheth is the distant nations. And you see that in verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. Now, we're not going to try and figure out a connection between every name here and some current uh, nation on earth. That would be a lot of work. It's interesting, but we don't have time for that in the sermon. But notice verse 5, from these, the coastland peoples, or so the, the maritime people spread in their lands, each with his own language. So, the maritime peoples, the coastland peoples for the Israelites were people that were on the other side of the Mediterranean. Uh, the people of the islands, the people of the coast, the people over there, far away. So this is, the descendants of Japheth are mainly the Europeans. And then we get to Verses six through to twenty, the sons of Ham. And these are a lot of these are the, the, the nations that were right around Israel. They interacted a lot with Israel, and a lot of them would be in continual conflict with Israel. And of course you remember the curse that was spoken by Noah over the sons of, of Canaan who were who were the, the, the Hamites who were closest to God's people later on. You remember that curse, that there was this rebellious, this sinful, this hating God and hating God's people that was just in the DNA of these nations around Israel. And so what do we see here in, in chapter 10? We see that just like before the flood, so after the flood, the earth fills with all kinds of violent and wicked people that hate God, mercy, and that love sin you see that as we read through this section on the Hamites, you, you see them building impressive cities and great kingdoms and just doing very well for themselves, being very successful. And how often isn't that true that the, the believer, like the psalmist in Psalm 73, the believer says, Lord, here I'm trying to do all the right things. I'm trying to worship you, trying to be a godly person, trying to follow your holy will and the Ten Commandments, it doesn't get me anywhere. And I look at the unbeliever, and they break all the rules, and they do whatever they want. And they seem to flourish. That's often a a cry from the heart of the believer. And that's what's happening here again. It happened before the flood. It's happening here after the flood. They're doing great. The people that hate God, they're just having so much success. You remember, of course, in the first chapters of Genesis that Cain went off, and he built a city. And then his descendant Lamech was a, a violent killer and a boastful fornicator. You remember how before the flood, the descendants of man, the anti-God part of the human race, were great in agriculture, science, and the arts, and all the important aspects of society and culture. And the only thing that could be said about God's people is that they were, they were calling on the name of the Lord. A bunch of pathetic weaklings. Wasn't a lot of success there. Not a lot to attract. And so we see much of the same dynamic now after the flood. The flood doesn't seem to have solved the problem, does it? We see Nimrod. And now Nimrod, possibly, there's a possibility, it's kind of connected to the Hebrew verb for to rebel. So possibly it could mean rebellion. And that certainly would not be unexpected. We're seeing history repeat itself here. He was uh, the, the first to be a mighty man. And, and the word mighty man here means powerful or even tyrant. So after the flood, they were all kind of living their lives and taking care of their own families. But as things grew and grew and grew, some people started to aggregate power. And Nimrod was the first guy that, that really knew how to do it well. He was a tyrant, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the preposition here, before, can be translated before, which is why we have it in our Bible that way, in our translation. Uh, but it, 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 it's, it's not before the Lord in the sense of falling on your face and worshiping. It's before the Lord in the sense of in his face. Nimrod doesn't care about the Lord. He cares about the kingdom of Man, and he gets what he wants. He's a hunter. He puts man and beast under his dominion. He establishes cities and kingdoms. And you notice that some of the cities that he establishes will later be great enemies of God's people. Nineveh, a cruel, cruel enemy of God's people later on. Babylon, another great enemy of the people of God many centuries later. <clears throat> And so what we have here is a a picture of the unceasing lust for power. That's what power does. It's like an animal that has tasted blood, and it wants more. It's never enough. So we certainly do not have a picture here of a godly man. We have a man who is glorying in his own power, He boasts in his power, his strength, and he oppresses others. It's the opposite of what the godly do and what the godly want. And then we go to verses 13 and 14, and we see that uh, one of the other sons of Ham, Egypt, he fathers uh, a whole bunch of different names here. And, and, And the names here in chapter 10 are not necessarily every single child of these people, what Moses is doing is he's collecting the names of those who became significant tribes or significant nations. So the, the, more, uh, the, the more powerful, the ones that uh, call attention to themselves, that become something later on. And so you see there in verse 14 that from Ham through Egypt, the, we have the Kazluhim. From whom the Philistines came. And we know, the children know, how the Philistines were constantly later another enemy that tried to destroy the people of God. They hated God and God's people. So what we're seeing here is that there are more and more, there's more and more growth of the arch enemies of the people of God. There's more and more growth of those who are aligning themselves with the seed of the serpent, those who want to destroy. The seed of the woman, because throughout the whole test, the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, every attempt to destroy Israel is an attempt to destroy our salvation, to prevent the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a cosmic, cosmic battle. And then we have in verses 15 through to 20, we're still with the Hamites here, and now we're focusing especially on the sons of Canaan and and those. Nations and peoples and tribes which came from Canaan were the tribes which were mainly the ones that were in the promised land. Later on, Joshua will have to expel them because after centuries of vile and horrible, disgusting stomach churning sins, the land will finally vomit them out so these it 's not just we have to understand this. These Canaanites were not just your typical very nice unbeliever that's a good person that outwardly lives kind of according to the Christian ethic. No, these were people that delighted in foul wickedness. It was just part of their life to take their little babies and murder them and kill them in order to get more wealth and more prosperity. Something like our nation today murders 100,000 children every year, our convenience, our comfort, and our prosperity. And then we have in verse 19, we have a description of the promised land. We have the, it's a geographical description from the north to the the south and over to the eastern part. It's delineating basically the promised land which later on in chapter 12 God will promise to to Abram. So, So notice here that Chapter 10 mentions this, the, the geographical directions in verse 19 and speaks about in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. Now, that means that when this was written, this particular historical document that Moses is working with here and reproducing, Sodom and Gomorrah were still around. So it was before the time of Abraham. So, so Moses is working with ancient texts. He's not just getting this all directly through inspiration from God. He's working with historical records which have been kept and accumulated by God's people over the ages. And here we see in verse 19 a little sign of that because the written text mentions a a bunch of cities which after the time of Abraham don't even exist anymore. So we know how old the texts are that, that, uh, that Moses worked with. And so it's something to consider as we look at the names of Sodom and Gomorrah Then, verse 19. If they were already so wicked that they were destroyed in Abram's time, we can only imagine what the rest of Canaan was like when centuries later the Lord said their iniquity is now complete. The measure of their sin is now filled up and now I will drive them from the land. There was a lot of disgusting, foul violence and wickedness in that land. And then we get to verse 21, and we get to the the third son. We've looked at Japheth, that's the distant nations, the sons of Ham, many of the nations right around Israel. And then we get to verse 21, the sons of Shem, the Semitic nations. But even here, it's not as though all the sons of Shem are on the Lord's side. In fact, the ones that are listed here in chapter 10 are mainly the ones that end up being enemies of the line of the woman, the holy seed. You look at verse 21, it says, To Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. So Shem's the elder brother of Japheth, and he's the father of all the children of Eber. Now, why would the scripture tell us that? Well, if you look at the end of chapter 11... Uh, chapter 11 you go through the genealogy. You see that it's the genealogy of, of, of Shem. This is specifically a focus in eleven verse ten on the holy line, and you see it's Shem, and it goes through the generations until uh, Eber in verse fourteen. He's born, and Eber is the father of Peleg and Joktan. And you notice that when it's focusing on the line of the Holy Seed that leads to the Lord Jesus, Peleg is the one through whom the Holy Nine goes. And so there's a division right at Eber. And so that's why it's mentioned here in verse 21 that Shem is the father of all the later descendants of Eber because Eber is the one who in his turn is the ancestor of Terah, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. So that's where things are going. That's where the holy line is going. That's why Eber is so important. And you see in Luke three verse thirty-five, you see that Eber is even mentioned in the New Testament. We, we might want to just turn in our Bibles very quickly because if you actually see it with your own eyes, it's better than just telling me or than me just telling you. Hebrews three thirty-five, we have the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. And you see that he is, uh, amongst other things, the son of Abram, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor. Verse 35, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber. So Eber is mentioned there right in the New Testament as one of the ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what we also notice here in chapter 10 is that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that antithesis, that, that holy conflict, cuts through the Semites as well. Look at verse 22, for instance. Asher founds the nation of Assyria. And Assyria is the empire which many centuries later will take the 10 tribes into exile, will destroy part of the people of God. You also see the name in verse 22, the name Aram. And Aram becomes the nation of Syria. Its capital is Damascus. And you remember, if you know your Old Testament, That Syria, Damascus, often attacked and tried to overcome and destroy the people of God. A constant enemy of the people of Israel. So it's important to note here that it's not just the sons of Ham. It's not just the Canaanites that are against God's people. But even within the line of Shem, there are some who are on the Lord's side and some who are against the Lord. And then we get to verse 25. And in verse 25, we, we read of Peleg. In his time, the earth was divided. Now, what does that mean? Well, Genesis chapter 11 is coming up, isn't it? And Genesis 11 speaks about the, the Tower of Babel and the Lord dividing, separating the peoples by language and spreading them over the earth. When they didn't want to listen, he made them listen. And so in Peleg's time, the earth was divided by, by languages. And so there was this blessed Enmity that God uses to divide and to separate. You see, unity is a beautiful thing, but not always. Unity with other believers is a good thing, but not unity in wickedness. Communion is a wonderful thing in the Spirit and in the Lord, but communion with wickedness and sin is not a good thing. And so that that promise of Genesis 3.15, guarantees that the church will stay separate from the world. And we see throughout the history of redemption that so often that's hanging by a thread. Just before the flood, it seems like everybody's on the serpent's side and there's just Noah. Everything's hanging by a thread for the line of the woman. And in chapter 10, we see the same thing. There's there's not really a mention in chapter 10, apart from a few small hints, there's not really a mention of the church of God, of the people of God, of the holy line, the holy seed of the woman. And so what we'll see uh, in the next sermon on Genesis in chapter 11 is that men try to unite against God and that God will once again put a holy and blessed separation in order to preserve his work of gathering the church. And so that separation is a curse for the ungodly because it cramps their style. They can't cooperate in their evil, but it's a blessing for the godly. We, we think of, there's so many ways that the, that the scriptures reminds us of that blessed antithesis, that blessed conflict, that blessed mutual enmity between the seed of the servant and the seed of the woman. And, for instance, the book of Psalms begins by establishing that, that antipathy, that enmity. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And it ends, that psalm ends, with the wicked being destroyed and the, and the godly being with God, walking under the blessing of God. And so we get to the end of the chapter, verse 32. And we read from these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. So what what has happened until now? Well, there was judgment on the world, which was polluted with sin. There was the flood. It was all scrubbed. It was washed down, the cataclysm. And now what happens next? Well, that's Genesis 10 tells us. Genesis 10 describes a new beginning, a filling of the earth. There are lots of descendants. There are entire nations and tribes. There is culture. There is politics. There is city building. There is kingdom building. There's lots of filling going on. But unfortunately, we don't see a whole lot of fulfilling. We don't see man fulfilling the purpose for which God has made him. You see, that's what sinners do. That's what sin does. Sinners take the good things of God and misuse them. That's what sin is, to take the good things of God and to pervert them, to misuse them. And when we do that, it hurts. When you take the good things of God and you misuse them, you don't use them in the right way or in the right time or in the right context for the right reason, then they hurt. Good things can hurt, and they bring pain and death and destruction. And I want to give you an example if someone gives you a beautiful vase, or vase, I think you say, vase, to put flowers in. Then if you put flowers in it, that's what it's for. And it makes you happy. And you see the flowers, and you see the beauty. It beautifies your house. That's what it's for. And when you use it for what it's for, it brings life, it brings joy, it brings happiness. But what if you take that that vase, and you smash it into little pieces with a hammer, and put it in the salad dressing. Well, then it's going to hurt, isn't it? It's going to lacerate your insides. It's still the same vase. It was made for one purpose, you're using for another purpose. The way you're using it hurts, and it may even kill you. So it's a bit of a ridiculous example, but that's how sin works. It takes the good things of God and misuses them and that's what we see in chapter 10. God said fill the earth but he didn't mean fill the earth with your arrogance and your plans and your kingdom and your lusts and with violence and with oppression and with sin. Well where have we seen this before? We've seen it haven't we before the flood. And so we see man filling his stomach, but he doesn't fulfill his calling to eat and drink to the glory of God. We see man filling his hands with tools, with the products of industry and art, filling the land with buildings and cities, filling the earth with kingdoms and nations, but he does not fulfill his call to build the kingdom of God, to do everything for him, from him, in him, unto him. So you look at verse 5, it says, well, these are the sons of Japheth, each with their own language, clans, and nations. Look at verse 20, the sons of Ham, their own clans, languages, lands, nations. Look at verse 31, these are the sons of Shem, their clans, languages, lands, and nations. So it mentions languages, even though the the story of Babel hasn't been told yet. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing here of what's going to happen in the next chapter. In Genesis 11, Moses is going to explain how it happened, that there were different languages. But what are we seeing here in chapter 10? We're seeing that the the kingdom of man, the seed of the serpent, gives itself over to unfulfilling things. To things which do not satisfy, do not fulfill the reason for which we exist. What does the church do? what do God's people do? Well, God's people doesn't look fulfilling. God's people looks for fulfilling, the fulfilling of God's promises. That's what we want to see. Where is the Messiah? Where is the one who will set things right? Where is the preservation of the church and the people of God? Where is it? Where do we see the gospel in chapter 10 of Genesis? Where do we see the gospel of the Lord Jesus? Well, you know what? Just like the Catechism says, you know, you've got to know your sins and misery and how to be delivered from them before you can live a life of gratitude. So the Bible also spends time showing us our need for the Savior before it tells us the story of the coming of the Savior. And we see here in chapter 10 that after the flood, man's nature has not changed. And so we see the need for, and we long for, a holy nation. As we read about all these nations here, we long for a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, God's own people. And then we see that even Shem's descendants, many of them become future enemies. And you see that in chapter 10, those who are not in the holy line are mentioned. Look at verse 30 there talking about the sons of Shem some of them the territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the whole country of the east and children if you read through genesis east always says away from god adam and eve were driven out of the garden to the east cain left the presence of the lord to the east east always means going away from god and there is not it's not a coincidence that when the tabernacle is built, when the temple's built, it is so oriented that when you approach the Holy of Holies and the further you get towards the Holy of Holies, you enter from the east going to the west. You're coming back to God. You're coming back into his presence. You're coming back into the garden, which is represented there by the Holy of Holies. So even the sons of Shem, many of them have turned away from God. And so we long for the gospel. We long to see the fulfillment of God's promises. We long to see the establishment of the kingdom of God. We long to see the opening of the way back into the presence of God. Now, Genesis 10 is the fourth Toledote. And there are 10 altogether. The first five are global ones, which deal with the whole world. And then the last five, they focus in especially on the patriarchs, on the people of Israel. What God is going to do from chapter 12 on is he's going to focus on one people group and going to make it kind of like a greenhouse. The the knowledge of the Lord and the service and worship of the Lord will be protected in that little greenhouse of the people of Israel there in the land of Canaan. So that's the big picture. After the flood, sin flourishes. It's a big mess again. But God is moving his plan forward. Even though the people don't want to spread through the earth, God makes them spread through the earth. We'll we'll hear about that in chapter 11. But even in this chapter of so much sad stuff, We see little hints. Did you see verse 19 when we read it? Verse 19 is drawing the map of where the people of God will live in the promised land. It's a little little sign of hope. The day is coming when there will be a place for the people of God, a people dedicated to his worship on this earth. We talked about Eber. Mentioned in verse 21. That's another little note of hope, a little sign that something's coming in the future the line of the woman will continue it will get to the messiah and so tiny little pinpricks of light as we're in this dark dark place in genesis chapter 10 but those little tiny pinpricks of light pinpricks of light they tell us that god is gathering and defending and preserving his church even when it is tiny and despised by the eyes of man even when it seems to be non-existent as far as the world is concerned. I want to ask you to open your psalm book for a moment to the Belgic Confession, because we confess that about the the Holy Catholic Church. The Belgic Confession in in, in, in Article 27, which is on page 510 of your book of praise, page 510, speak about the Holy Church, Look at the second paragraph there in Article 27. This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will be to the end, for Christ is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. This holy church is preserved by God against the fury of the whole world, although for a while it may look very small and as extinct in the eyes of men. That's why the church is one of the articles of the Apostles' Creed. We believe that God gathers, defends, and protects his church. Even when we don't see it, we know it to be true by faith. And so in this time of Genesis chapter 10, God's people are living by faith. Because it sure doesn't look like they're going to get the victory. It is living by faith. And so, you know, we may wonder also today, where is God? Why is, why is it that the, the faithful churches seem so tiny and so few in a world of 7 billion people? Why is there so little holiness and love for God and love for the Word? Why do sin and wickedness abound? What on earth is God doing? But the Scripture tells us over and over, you need to believe. God is sovereignly directing history. And throughout the Old Testament, he's moving towards the birth and the suffering and the death and the resurrection and the glorious victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know how the story ends. So, brothers and sisters, the the scripture today confronts us with a question. Are you just filling or are you fulfilling? The world offers you what? Well, the world offers you the world. And what is the use? What is the use if you fill your heart with the desires of your unregenerate neighbors, with the lust for pleasure, for comfort, for the world's standards of beauty and success? What's the use if we fill our lives with work to build our kingdoms even if it means oppressing others and ripping others off and not keeping our word and neglecting time with our wife and with our children because we've got to build our career, build our business, build the number of things we've got. What is the use if we fill our heart and our head and our hands with the unrelenting drive to pursue the kingdom of man? It can somewhat fill our stomachs and our eyes but what does it fill it with the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life what is the use of filling up our schedule filling up our planner with things that rob our time What is the use of filling up our bank accounts and filling up our need for acclaim and for status and for the adulation and admiration of others? What is the use of filling up our bucket list? You know what the gospel says? The gospel says you can stop. It's okay. You can stop. Stop trying to fill the bucket of the kingdom of man. You know why it's never going to work? It's got a hole in it. And to mix my metaphors here, you can get off the treadmill. Because God is calling you to something more. God is calling you to something better. You're not just here to meaninglessly take up time and fill space with the fleeting pleasures of Vanity Fair. God calls you to something more, to something higher. God calls you to a life of fulfillment. Where your every act, every word, every thought is an act of worship, an act of glory. And so the question that the Holy Spirit puts before us in this text this morning is this Are you, am I, are we fulfilling our part in God's cosmic plan? You know, as parents, we've got to think about that. We spend so much time making sure our kids can fit in in the world and be successful in this life, and that's important to a degree. But it's meaningless outside of the context of preparing them for who they are and who they will be eternally. And so, Governor Amanda, you heard that in the form, right? What God calls you to do with little Aubrey. To teach her in the way of the Lord and to tell her who she is. In Christ and what God is preparing for her in all eternity. So just like in Genesis chapter 10, it's not something that you can perceive with human eyes and with an unregenerate heart, but you can perceive it with the eyes of faith. And you can hold on to the little signs, the little harbingers of a new world order, which we are already beginning to live Here and now. You see, the Spirit opens our eyes so we can see through all the crud of the kingdom of man and we can begin to see the work of the kingdom of God already now in this life and in this world. We see the fulfillment of God's promises trumps any and every pleasure that the world might offer. The fulfillment of God's promises, the The fulfillment of God's plan comes in the birth of the one. The one who will be lifted up, not against God like Nimrod, but lifted up on a cross, bearing the wrath of God and drawing all men, all nations to himself. And the resurrected and victorious Lord Jesus will tell his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The nations have been given to me. And so go out to all the nations. And that starts in the first century and that continues to today. We're going to get out there. And we're going to tell all the people groups and all the languages and all the nations and all the tribes. We're going to tell them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. That Jesus is the fulfillment that every human heart desperately needs. And that's still our job today, brothers and sisters. We've got a message for the nations. Yeah, that those messy, conflicted, turbulent, rebellious, sin-loving, sin-sick nations. We as church have to tell them something. Abandon your loyalty to the serpent. Bow before the seed of the woman. Bow the knee. Confess the name. Because the end of the story is coming. And we know what the end is, don't we? Revelation 7, 9. That scene where around the throne there are people from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb and worshiping. That's what the scripture tells us. Maybe we can't see it right now, but that's the truth. The nations belong to the Lord Jesus. And we're going to sing about that right now. Psalm 2, stanza 3. The nations belong to Christ. We see it right here. Well, we would if, if we were all gathered here physically, but we see it right here and in our living rooms. The nations belong to Jesus. Because you know what? I don't think anybody in our church is a direct descendant of the line of the woman. I don't think, I don't know, maybe somebody can tell me later if somebody has Jewish blood in them. But we're all from the other nations, all of us. We're all from those other nations that we read about here in chapter 10. Those ones that were outside, those ones that were arrayed against. But here we are. From different cultures and different ethnicities and different nations, here we are gathered together worshiping the Lamb. Here we are and we belong because we've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness. We've been brought into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we need to raise the banner of that kingdom over every nation, over every state, over every culture, over every language, over every authority. And we need to call the people in the world around us, don't just take up space. Don't just fill the earth with you and your things and your plans and your kingdom. But by the power of the Spirit of God, you can finally fulfill the reason for which you were created. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen.